Micah 3, I want to read it to you. This is the word of Almighty God. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord. He will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgments for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. Let's pray together. Father, would you open your word to us? Would you show us Christ? Would you show us righteousness? Would you show us your holy, right goodness in your holy word. We need you to open a book like this for our eyes. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. And you can be seated. Back in the month of April, we talked about the glorious return of Jesus that was promised in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Y'all remember that? One of you remembers that sermon. I am so, so glad that I preach. In that message back in April, we talked about the return of Jesus. I suggested that one strategy of the enemy is to distract us from the promises of God by getting us to fight about the order of future events. Have you ever noticed that happening before? Now, because of those arguments, there are words that if some Christians hear those words, they cringe or they shut off their brains so they can't, they don't even think about whatever the person's talking about. You know what I mean? For example, there are people, there are believers who shudder when they hear the word rapture, right? Why? 
because they've been put off either by harsh teaching from one group or odd movies starring Nicolas Cage on the other. (laughs) Well, today I want to bring to our attention another word, another set of words, that because of our modern situation, our modern politics, our our, our modern situation, our, 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 our harsh world, some people don't even want to say these words anymore. It's sad but true that many Christians today have become weary of the word justice. Some people have weaponized the word oppression. And because those words have now been given a modern political spin, many Christians might find it difficult to think about these topics even when they're presented in the word of God. So this morning, dear friends, Let's not be jaded by modern politics. Let's not be led astray by modern redefinitions of words. Instead, let's look directly into the word of God. Let's see the principles of oppression and justice and righteousness. And then let's make glorious, God-honoring gospel application that'll change our lives and maybe even change the whole world around us Kind of fits the whole your kingdom come stuff, doesn't it? As we open Micah chapter 3, we're entering the second of three sections of this book. There are three prophetic cycles or oracles in Micah. Chapters 1 and 2 are the first one. Chapters 3 through 5 are the second one. 6 and 7 are the last. And the first section showed us that the judgment of God was coming upon Israel for her sin of idolatry. The judgment of God was also going to fall upon the southern kingdom of Judah because of their evil. Evil leaders were taking advantage of the poor. False prophets were preaching some sort of Old Testament version of prosperity theology. And though the southern kingdom was going to go into exile, God also promised that he would not utterly destroy his people. Instead, God would someday in their future send a shepherd who would gather all of God's people and lead them together as one flock. And that, of course, pointed us toward Jesus as we finished chapter 2. So now we start the second cycle in Micah, and we're going to see promises from God of righteous judgment that will fall. Like before, We're going to work our way through the chapter first to see what it meant to the people to whom the prophecy was given. And then at the end, we're going to find application for ourselves as well. In a whole lot of ways, guys, this will feel a lot more Bible study-y than sermon-y. Is sermon-y a word? Thank you. Thank you. I I get to coin words. But let's get started. We're going to find three points, and we're going to see the judgment of God against evil leaders. That's what this is titled, by the way, The Judgment of God Against Evil Leaders. Point number one, God judges evil leaders. How about that for a creative point, huh? Micah 3, verses 1 through 4. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. 
Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. That opening line, the call here, the call to listen up, that's the same that opened the first prophetic cycle in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 2, if you want to find it. God wants his people, especially the ones in leadership here in chapter 3, to listen. Because as before, God is going to bring charges. God is going to pronounce judgment. And then eventually God will give us hope. The heads and the rulers of the people need to know what justice is. Would you guys agree with that, by the way, that leaders in a nation ought to have some sense of what justice is? Yeah. I mean, leaders who govern nations have been put in their place. They've been given authority for the express purpose of doing justice. Rulers are supposed to punish evil and honor what is good. You can see Romans 13, 1 through 5 for that. The question is then asked, is it not, leaders, for you to know justice? Well, let me ask you, do you guys know justice? What is justice? Let me make it simple. What is justice? Justice is the right and proper application of the word and ways of God. How do you guys like that for a definition of justice? The right and proper application of the word and ways of God. Now, that should tell you that those who have the word of God are the best ones equipped to do justice. Wouldn't you agree? They know what the Lord has said is good. They know what the Lord has said is evil in the word. They can bring justice to bear. But, and I need you to understand this, this is important. Those who do not have the word of God still have been given by God what we refer to as common grace, general revelation, which is the revelation of God that is available to all people everywhere. So even godless leaders of nations are without excuse when it comes to justice because even the godless have been given by God enough common grace that they should know and do justice. God has revealed enough truth in the conscience of mankind, in natural revelation that even lost leaders should be able to apply principles of justice. If that wasn't the case, friends, Paul could never have told the early church, submit to Roman rule in Romans 13. But Paul tells first century Christians, even Roman authorities, lost men, are instruments in God's hand, put in place with the responsibility of affirming the good and punishing the evil. Now, what's the problem in Micah's day? The authorities in Israel, men who have access to the word of Almighty God, Men who know that they're a nation in covenant with God, in agreement with God, part of which is requiring they keep the law of God, they've stopped doing justice. 
They've stopped applying the command of the word of God to life in Israel. And that is going to have disastrous results. Well, where would you look if you were alive in Micah's day to know the word and ways of God so as to do justice as a leader? If you were a leader, where should you look? I would think you'd find it in the law of God, wouldn't you? Books like Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. In those sacred texts, God spelled out for Israel exactly what they were to do as a nation in covenant with the Lord, that they might worship God, that they might please God, that they might avoid dishonoring God, that they might rightly live as a nation, and that they might not suffer the curse of God by God casting them out of their land. So if we want to know how to do justice, we ought to look to the law of God. If we want to look to the law of God, now, I don't actually have time to preach to you all of the end of Exodus... Leviticus and Deuteronomy and some of Numbers this morning. I don't think I'd make it. If you want me to try, I'll get started, but no takers. Maybe one. All right. If we want to figure this out, maybe we need a summary. What's a summary of the law of God? Well, let me ask you guys, where would you look for a summary of the law of Almighty God? That's a good place. Let's go a little. <laughs> Thank you. Where do you live? Earth. Let's go closer. Jesus. Where else might we go besides just the Bible, Ben? Thank you. You would look at the Ten Commandments because the Decalogue is the summary of the law of God. You can even shorten them into two, can't you? What do the Ten Commandments teach Israel? They teach you that if you want to be the people of God, you are to love the Lord your God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the summary. With me? How? Loving God includes what? Having no gods beside God, bowing to no idols, never taking the name of God in vain, and honoring his Sabbath day and keeping it holy. That was what, for Israel, it meant to love God, right? With me? Loving neighbor includes not making them work on the Sabbath day that they might honor God. It includes honoring your parents, not killing, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness, and not coveting. There's the summary of the law of God. And if you ask about justice, if you ask about justice, and this is probably worth writing down because it's pretty cool, You could say that justice involves those commands not to take someone's life, someone's property, someone's reputation, or someone's family. Life, property, reputation, family. You do injustice by taking those things from people. Israel's leaders were required to know this stuff. In verse 2, we see that there is no heart of justice among the leaders of Israel. God says they hate the good and love the evil. Verses 2 and 3, then Michael paints a horrible picture. The, The leaders are tearing the people to pieces. The ugly images are of the powerful flaying the flesh off the poor, chopping them up in pieces like stew in a pot and then eating them up. 
That is metaphorical, just so you know. The Israelites were not given to cannibalism. But it is a very intentionally ugly, intentionally violent, intentionally bloody image being used. The leaders who were supposed to do justice, they did evil. In chapter 2, we saw an example of what this ugliness looked like, right? In Judah, the powerful were using their wealth to scheme ways to rob the less powerful of their homes, their families, their livelihoods. The powerful would steal, they would kill, they would defame, they would do anything they wanted so long as they ended up with the possessions that they craved. Then in verse 4, the Lord pronounces sentence. These same leaders are going to cry out to God one day. Those evil leaders are going to cry out to God one day. They will see enemies on the horizon. They'll see a threat coming down on their nation and they're going to pray. And God says, I will not hear them. God is going to let the enemies overrun them. God is going to use the forces of enemy nations to bring down these unjust, evil, godless leaders. What does Micah show us? God sees evil and unjust practices. And God promises he will bring down judgment on those perpetrating the offense. God will not let evil stand forever. Eventually, God will rightly, perfectly, properly retaliate. The people of God can trust that God will not let unjust rulers stand forever. Your kingdom come. Point number two. God judges false prophets. God judges false prophets. Evil leaders, false prophets. Let's just do five through seven. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. If you remember back in chapter 2, that was last week in case you want to know how long ago that was. It was not only the political leaders who were a problem in the land of Israel. God pronounced judgment against the false religious teachers who were peddling prophecy for profit. It's present right here too. What are the prophets in the land doing? They're leading God's people astray. That's terrifying. That's dangerous. In the book of Deuteronomy, God has a very clear warning for the people of God. Some false prophets are going to predict things that don't come to pass. And if somebody says, oh, this is the future, I seen it from God, and then it doesn't happen, you know they're a false prophet, right? They would be pretending to have a supernatural insight. But, and this is what you need to know, even from the Old Testament, others would make proclamations of the future that would come to pass. They look like they must have the power from God, 
But then they will turn and try to lead the people of God away from him. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 14, 1 through 5. Hear this warning from the Old Testament. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, it happens. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Do you not find that passage chilling, by the way? Understand this. In the days of the Old Testament, God spoke directly to prophets in a way that I do not believe we will see today. Why do we not have God speaking directly to prophets today in the way they did in the Old Testament? Because God has completed the canon of Scripture and we have a holy, perfect, complete, sufficient word at our fingertips. Many of us on our iPhones. And God allowed the prophets in the Old Testament to promise and predict future events by the power of God as a sign that they are bona fide prophets. And we're not going to see that happen quite that way today because the ministerial period of the apostles has come to a close while we sit under the perfect word of God and the given Holy Spirit. Here we see that there are going to be some in the Old Testament that have legitimate supernatural power, but they will attempt to use their power for evil and not for the glory of God. God says that those men in Israel deserve the death penalty for that offense so that the nation in covenant with God would not be corrupted, led away from God, so they wouldn't face the destruction of God because if they face the destruction of God, then the promised Messiah can't make it to earth. What were the prophets of Micah's day doing? They spoke words of peace to people who fed them. They spoke words of peace to people who gave them money. They spoke words of war against those who did not profit them financially. They preached whatever the biggest donor wanted to hear. And friends, that was evil. Because of this offense, God said he will bring judgment. Verse 6, there's a promise of darkness falling on the prophets. They're no longer going to see the things they used to be able to see. Verse 7, we see that they're going to be put to shame. They're going to cover their lips. They're going to no longer have supernatural powers to prophesy. They're going to cover their mouths because they've got nothing left to say. They're going to lose any connection that they might have had to God or to any other form of supernatural power. 
God showed us earlier he would bring down a government that loves evil and hates good. Now God shows us that he will bring down religious leadership that preaches falsehoods for financial gain. Verse 8, though, look at this in comparison. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In contrast to the evil prophets, Micah's got the power of God. He's got the Spirit of God. And Micah's going to tell the truth. Micah's going to proclaim the judgment of God over Israel, over Judah. He's honestly going to tell the people, this is your sin. Now, let me ask you, just as a general emotional response, thumbs up, thumbs down, positive, negative, how much do you like being told you are guilty of sin? Most of you would give it kind of a thumbs down, wouldn't you? That's our nature. How many of you like being confronted? Anyone? Kelly? Okay, no, please. Okay, just checking. Rulers and preachers in Micah's day may not have liked the idea that they're going to be guilty of sin, they're going to be told that they're guilty of sin, but listen to me and understand this. This is good of God. This is kindness from God. The Lord is going to proclaim judgment through Micah, but the proclamation of judgment to come always includes an understood call for everyone who hears the proclamation to repent to turn from sin, to turn to God, to find life. If I point out your sin, if God shows you your your sin, please know that God has had mercy on you to give you the chance to turn from sin and get under his grace. Third point. Evil leaders... Bring judgment on the land. Point three, evil leaders bring judgment on the land. Verses nine through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruin and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Here Micah pronounces what God is going to do in a little bit more specific way. First, a call that pay attention. Listen up, y'all. Rulers who hate justice, rulers who do that which is crooked. Listen up, you evil leaders who build the city with blood. What does that mean? The leaders are willing to use up people's lives. They will kill in order to make the city what they want their city to be. Verse 11 we see that the leaders are going to give false judgments. They they pervert justice for bribes. What do you all think about how God probably feels about those who would pervert justice for a bribe? God hates this. 
God forbids it, especially among those who are supposed to be his people. Leviticus 19.15. Listen to the word of Almighty God. Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Or Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Do note, by the way, that the justice of God here favors neither the wealthy nor the poor. Judges are to give simply honest, right decisions based on what is true and right in accord with the word and ways of God. The financial status of the person in question has nothing to do with it. And any judge, any leader who will pervert justice for money is in sin before the Lord. Then verse 11 turns the attention to the evil religious leaders, their priests, teach for a price, it's profits, practice divination for money. And then they lean on God. They say, oh, isn't God in the midst of us? No disaster could ever come on us because God's with us. God must love us. We're wonderful. They say to themselves, no way would God let harm befall us. They assume that they can preach for money, then point back at the temple and say, look, we must be safe because we got the temple. In Micah chapter 2, the same sort of thing was being said. In Micah 2 verse 6, we saw, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah 2 11, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he'd be the preacher for this people. Obviously, Micah sees the preachers of his day promising good to the people that give them money. He sees them speak out against anybody who doesn't give them money, and God's not going to let them act like this. The priests are also practicing divination. God hates divination. God forbids divination. You understand divination, right? Kind of fortune-telly stuff. Kind of talk to the spirits to hear the future might be sacrifice an animal and try to read the future in its entrails. How much does God hate divination? Because, by the way, some of you guys play with your horoscopes and play with reading the future. Listen to this word, Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. You guys understand, God doesn't like that stuff, right? If he equates it with sacrificing your children, that should give you an example of how strongly God feels about divination. These foolish religious leaders should not think that they're safe. 
And in fact, Micah tells them in verse 12 what God's going to do because of the wickedness from both the rulers and the religious. Zion's going to be plowed under. The city's going to be ruined. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be left utterly desolate. The sin of the people brings the wrath of God on their land. And there's the end of the chapter. How do you feel? Heavy? Weighty? This chapter is hard. The leaders of the nation are evil. The religious leaders in this nation at this point are evil. The judgment of God's going to fall. The people of Micah's day should have heard this. They should have trembled. They should have cried out to the Lord for mercy. They should have repented. They should have pleaded for life. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to guess a hundred something years later, he knew what Micah had written. Jeremiah actually quotes Micah directly um, in Jeremiah 26, 18. He quotes him. But Jeremiah reminds the people of God of this fact. There's hope for any nation that repents. Listen to Jeremiah 18, verse 8. 18, 8. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. There is hope. God is good. God is just. God is merciful. And God will always do justice and always judge. And all of this is always true of God all the time. So now as we move toward a close... Is there any way to apply this word from 700 B.C. to our day? What do you guys think? Can any of this apply to Christians? Some of you are going to say yes. Is this because you think I think that or you really buy it? Now, we don't live in national Israel. You understand that, right? We live in America. Our nation is not a nation in covenant relationship with the Lord. God has not promised us, follow my law and I will make you strong, disobey my law and I'll squash you. We don't have that contract with God. But the Lord reigns over all the world. Think of the Great Commission. What authority did Jesus say was given to him in the Great Commission? All. That means Jesus reigns over all the nations, right? He's the king, he's the ruler, he's the master over all. And the Lord's ways are always right for all people at all times. Justice is still justice. Now, there is not a New Testament command that we must take the Old Testament laws given to national Israel and apply them to the nations of the world. But we can clearly apply from the law the ways and the character of God. We can apply from the law his explanation of justice. We can apply from the law and from the word of God and from the principles God has given us. We can apply God's explanation of justice and the way that the nation should function to do that which is just and right. You guys buy that? God's word applies 
God's righteousness is always righteous. God never gave a bad commandment. Let's make some applications here. First, we saw God is going to judge evil and unjust leaders. That section should help you and me to see we don't want to support injustice. Agreed? When a politician is willing to use other people up, chopping them up like stew for the pot in order to benefit the powerful and tread on the weak, that is evil. It would be wise for us all to examine how our world runs. When you see the powerful stomp on the weak, you should oppose it. Where you see people seeking to gain by taking from others instead of simply gaining through honest labor, you should call that oppression. You should call it sin. Again, what did we say about loving your neighbor was? You don't steal from them their, their life. You don't take their life. You don't take their property. You don't take their reputation. You don't take their family. If you see that happening, know that it's sin. Go after it. Keep in mind the biblical call for justice. Don't favor the rich and don't favor the poor. Apply even-handedly to every case honest judgment. It might be wise for you, Christian, to examine yourself. Are you somebody who thinks that in most cases, the poor should be favored and given extra advantages? That's not biblical justice. We're being taught in society right now that if somebody has less than another person, they should be given extra, actually higher ranking advantages so that they might be favored. That's not biblical justice. Biblical justice is to treat each other equally, not to favor the poor. But are you one who thinks there's no chance in our society that the poor have been and still are taken advantage of? Y'all, that ain't realistic. In our legal system, unfortunately, you can see people use wealth and power to get away with things that other people don't get away with. That is unjust. We've got to seek to see biblical, even-handed justice applied in our society. And we should seek to champion that. Now, the first section here also talks about people loving evil, hating good. We need to be aware that in our society right now, there are those who are championing evil and hating good. Micah spoke metaphorically about the powerful chopping up the bodies of the poor. But don't you see that that is not a metaphor in our nation today? The evil industry of abortion on demand does exactly what Micah said. The bodies of unborn infants, living human beings in the image of God, are broken to pieces, chopped up and removed from the safety of the mother's womb. And when we as a nation allow this, we are loving evil and hating good. As a nation, we are destroying the weak for the whims of the strong. This is as great a sin as has ever occurred in the history of any nation in the world. The Holocaust in World War II took the lives of 9 million Jews. 
In the United States, we've seen an estimated 62 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. Many would say that number's low. But don't you understand? That is the Holocaust seven times over. We live in a nation that has loved the evil and hated the good. Is your standard for evil and good the standard of the word of God? If so, there have got to be other political causes that you can't approve in our society. While you show love and kindness, while you show godly respect to all people, you've got to oppose the current championing of homosexuality, especially the transgender movement that is mutilating people. These acts are things God says in his word without question are evil. We've got to oppose those who would make them more prominent. So what do we do? Well, you at least start by mourning the sin, don't you? Are you sad about this? Does it break your heart that this is your land? If it doesn't, something's wrong. Does it break your heart that the poor are taken advantage of? Does it break your heart that bodies are broken and torn to pieces? You should be rightly horrified at the evils that have happened in our land. Be horrified about the injustices and the murders that still take place. Grieve racism and sex trafficking and all forms of abuse. And in your sorrow, pray. Cry out to the Lord. God, change our land. Pray for just laws, even-handed, biblically just laws. Pray for the system not to favor the poor, not to favor the rich, but to do justice as the word of God commands. Pray that God will have elective abortion on demand, the murder of the unborn abolished in our land. Pray that God would make it a crime for anybody to perform or participate in an abortion. And perhaps you need to take action. Some believers will go take part in protests. Some will write letters to governmental leaders. Some will go to the political centers of power. Some may study, grow and run for office. Some may march the sidewalks in prayer and passionate evangelistic apologetic ministry. Not all of us are wired and gifted the same way. You know that, right? So the type of action you take is not going to be the same as the type of action every other believer takes. So don't feel bad if you're not wired to be the guy on the street corner with the bullhorn. But As God leads you, as God opens for you the opportunity, seek, as the Bible would say, to rescue those being led to the slaughter. Seek to see to it that the powerful cannot walk all over the weak. My wife came home yesterday with a stat she didn't know, and that was that in our very city there are currently two crisis pregnancy centers, places that will help women to have their babies. 
there are nine facilities performing abortions around the city. You've got to pray that God will change this. And you've got to know what's going on. In our system, seek to vote righteously. Please note, especially for our government overlords listening to this message later, I'm not telling you to vote for one politician or another. I'm not telling you to even vote for one party or another. But can we at least agree not to vote for those who push the nation into greater evil? Would you guys buy that? If you intend to vote, please be responsible enough to know what your candidate stands for and don't let yourself vote for somebody who's going to do injustice or destroy the powerless. What about the guilt of false religious leaders? I hate being political, by the way. Micah spoke out against leaders who would preach whatever the powerful want to hear. We can draw a parallel between that and modern prosperity theology and modern liberation theology. There are men out there who will say anything the world around them wants them to say just if it'll make their ministries grow and be more profitable, especially more profitable financially. There are ministers who will promise people health, wealth, and prosperity if they will just give them a little bit more money. That is evil. It's a lie. It dishonors God. So if you have a smiling preacher promising you that for a few bucks you can have your best life now, turn him off. There are other preachers out there who have made the gospel not about money, but they've made their whole pulpit about social prosperity. They've seen hints of injustice out there. And instead of pointing to the justice of God, they've told people that the gospel is about lifting up the oppressed people group so that the oppressed people group gets more of this worldly power. That's not the gospel. If you hear a supposed gospel that's not about Jesus, it's not the gospel. If you hear a gospel that's about fixing this world or getting powerful in this world instead of about forgiveness and eternal life, it's not the gospel. If you hear a gospel that favors any people group over any other people group or which defines us by our skin color, by our nationality, or by our preferences, it is not the gospel. If we want to do rightly, we've got to preach and embrace and proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to earth from heaven to save us from our sins and bring us to God through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. All people who will turn from sin and trust in Jesus will be saved. They'll be given forgiveness. They'll be given eternal life by God. Yes, People who are saved by God will act in a more just way as they submit to the word of God and that will change the world. But the gospel's not about you fixing this world. The gospel is about glorifying God in God making you into a child of God, a member of the family of God through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So I invite you, if you don't know Jesus Please come to Jesus and find life and forgiveness. 
You might say, but I don't understand everything about Jesus. There's still things I'm not sure that I, that I get. Let me ask you, should it surprise you that you, a finite sinful person, do not understand the workings of an infinite, holy, and perfect God? It shouldn't surprise you if you don't get everything God has done. But God has told you what you've got to know. You need the forgiveness of Jesus. You need the mercy of Jesus. And if you don't have it, you're in deep, deep trouble before God. Trust Jesus. Turn from sins. Be saved. And if you do know Jesus, which I expect to be most of you, love Jesus. Honor Jesus. Joyfully obey his holy word. Know that God will do justice. And we can strive to help bring that about. But ultimately, friends, fixing this world is up to our Lord. May your kingdom come. May we trust our Lord and rest in his perfection as he, by the power of his word and his spirit, does the things that only God can do. Let's pray together, friends.